Welcome everyone to the Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek, your official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt and joining me as always is Pete. Hello, Pete. Hipster, it's for you. The Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 102, Two Dead Men, is sponsored by Anvil Security Contractors, already better than Blackwater. Well, Pete, here we are, so happy to be joining our audience for uh, some reflection on Punisher episode 102. Before we dive on in, have to note that up on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we have our review from Justice League, a movie. Uh, and of course, the Pop Culture Podcast feed will have uh, our review of the first episode of Runaways, the Hulu Marvel mashup of which we saw that first episode back at New York Comic Con. So exciting times all the way around, Pete. Definitely looking forward to talking about Runaways beginning tomorrow night, and we'll talk about our uh, giveaway for that, so you can listen in if you're so inclined. Well, let's dive on in to an episode summary for this episode, 102, Two Dead Men. The episode opens with a flashback of Frank Castle on the ferry to Liberty Island, a patriotic, stern, caring father. Later, in a diner, he orders breakfast and receives a call from Micro, who seems to be making positive contact. Frank watches a disc left by Micro, showing a black ops torture session in Afghanistan. Frank asks Kurt and later Karen Page if the secret about his being alive is out. Both say no, but Karen digs uh, into Micro's past. Between her digging and Micro's creepy camera views, uh, we <laughs> learn that Micro, a.k.a. Daniel Lieberman, has a wife named Sarah and children and is presumed dead. Frank initiates a quote-unquote accidental meeting with Sarah, adding to our sense of her grief and our sympathy for her. Micro sees this and gets a, uh, a second message that Frank is watching back. Uh, there's also a visual suggestion or two that Micro is actually more prisoner than Frank. Uh, Frank uses information from the Sarah uh, uh, experience, the Sarah visit, to in turn visit Wolf, whose black ops past comes to light courtesy of losing a fight to a masked Frank. Castle seems to have the upper hand, but loses it to Wolf, who monologues about being involved as one of the true killers of Frank's family, until it's revealed that Frank was in charge all along, resulting in the death of Wolf, rather shockingly. Uh, Frank contacts Micro, sending him on a wild goose chase after revealing that they're both free of Wolf. The chase uh, ends first at Micro's grave, then back at Micro's base, uh, where uh, Frank has been tagging along in Micro's car. Micro is happy to see Frank, and Frank cold clocks him. Concurrent to Frank's story, Madani is digging quietly on her Afghanistan case. That leads to private contractor Billy Russo of the company Anvil. She convinces Wolf to schedule a training session with Anvil, a long con of sorts to let Madani talk with Russo about Afghanistan and his best buddy, Frank Castle. Their talk is cut short by news of Wolf's death and the rise of Madani to agent in charge. Pete, where would you like to begin as we break down this episode? I'm a big fan of the chronological approach. And I, I think the biggest thing that struck me with this series from the start is its willingness to confront issues yet at the same time be thoughtful about them. So here is this flashback that... Frank is having at the beginning 
and Frank Jr. uses a racial slur and his father adamantly corrects him on this. And I think it's just so part and parcel to the premise of this show dipping back into the, the wrong that was done, you know, at this point admitted by Frank and, and we've seen that video yet. We don't know who's who in the video with the masks covered. Um, but that he corrects him and that we have a middle Eastern, um, a woman, an American of, of middle Eastern descent, um, on the show in the cast, I think wise to do so at the same time, it, it comes across a little too stern and there's a, a tinge of regret to it, which I also appreciated given that the children and his wife are now gone. I also like that in that scene, it's literally a flashback. Modern day Frank is shown being on the ferry, thinking back to that moment. Um, it, it would have been just fine if it was a mere flashback for them, but for them to have that little extra moment there is, uh, I don't know, it's just a little extra flourish that maybe we haven't gotten always from some of the Marvel Netflix stuff. I also appreciated how Frank uh, is led first on a, a wild goose chase by micro before flipping the tables, turning the tables towards the end of the episode. Um, micro having been on top of the diner the whole time using the, uh, the reflection with the mirror there to lead him to the other side to find the, the burner phone uh, before we flip that around. Yeah. Given that this is a longer episode than the pilot and by certain measures, less goes on despite the fact that it's longer there's a nice pace to this episode as a whole as they really start to un <laughs> hate to, to use the word hate to use the corporate word but as, as we unpack micro's story here um in my mind the jury is still out as to the initial one of the initial reviews of this series which is six great episodes across you know six episodes of story across 13 episodes i didn't feel that this was a slow episode watching it looking back not tons and tons and tons of stuff happens in terms of moving the story football forward. But I felt, I felt this was a solid episode. This is a good episode. I think it's the type of slow burn with this material that's demanded. We have this mystery of what took place in Afghanistan, the drug connection, which you weren't even sure of when we talked about the first episode and here you know, whether it's for the general viewer, whether it's for every viewer, the need to check in on that again. And the idea of Madani's partner, friend, maybe a little bit more, who was killed there, who was a cop, who was undercover. And, um, you know, Frank and his unit's involvement in that. Yeah, to me, it, to me, there's still a certain lack of clarity, but I'm confident that that um, this episode and future episodes are going to be moving in two directions in time. We're going to be uncovering the past as we move uh, forward in the present or move into the future. However you want to, however you, you want to call exactly what's happening right now, Pete, are we traveling forward or is it just a perpetual <laughs> present? We'll save that for our traveling through time podcast, which already came out in the past. Um, but I like that we, I like that we're slowly unfolding things here. Uh, if anything, I would have loved to see more Madani, but gee whiz, Pete, I think we're going to get more Madani, as noted in the recap, uh, agent in charge now um, in 
in, in a rather shocking way for one to uh, to move up the chain of command. Absolutely. And I'll address that in a little bit. But you talk about the unfolding. Literally, Matt, we get Karen Page on a byline with the murders in Little Italy, of course, Frank's handiwork. Then we get him, uh, you know, posing as a homeless person and asking, uh, you know, his old pal Karen for some change and how he catches up there with her. Great to see Deborah Ann Wall uh, make her debut in The Punisher and uh, can never have enough last having seen her in The Defenders. I like that we're at a point with all of this, whether you want to say Marvel Netflix or MCU or Marvel TV, wherever you want the line of demarcation. We're at a point where when you have a crossover like this, it's not this big moment of like, wait, Pete, you'll never believe it. Karen Page is in this. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's just very casual. Yeah. And I like that we're at that point where he, he reads about her, decides to seek her out. Um, I wonder if there's some social commentary that a hipster can pass as a homeless or a homeless can pass as a hipster or whatever, whatever, I, I suppose Frank is really neither, but that's a discussion for, I guess our hipster V homeless podcast. Um, but it, I like that she's just able to show up in this episode and it fits, but Pete, enough of the nice happiness the the happy feelings that we get seeing karen page let's bring it down a little bit carson wolf here in retrospect well named yeah and see thomas howell we we barely knew ye um to to get his neck snapped here um by frank after the admission that he was in on the hit of the family and that it was because of frank that they were murdered certainly deepens our mystery um but and and where for us with our podcast model ordinarily you know we we spend uh, a certain amount of time talking about the villains um and punishers a, a different ball of wax to this point you know frank being that anti-hero but uh carson wolf here played by c thomas howell um, you know, out of the picture now, who, who fills that void, Matt? Well, I think that's a good question. I like that the show is, the, the show is definitely, um, it's taking twists and turns. I would not have thought a, um, more so in the last episode, but also in this episode, uh, looking at the sense of, uh, paranoia and fitting in, uh, after returning home whether you want to call that PTSD or not. Um, not not that I'm saying Frank is not suffering from PTSD. He certainly is, but kind of all these social issues. But also here we are, we're two episodes in, not quite, not quite sure what an overarching storyline would be, but this isn't in the slow, slow pace, say, of season one of Daredevil, which to me, while a great season, just you know, w was too slow. I like that this is a, a smaller mystery, which is unfolding. I wouldn't say that Daredevil season one was slow. I, I would turn this a little slower. But I, again, I think the difference in the type of story that they're telling, this is more meditative, reflective, looking at these particular issues rather than the grittiness of Hell's Kitchen and everything going on there. 
I like, uh, I, I suppose, before we move on from from Wolf for good, I like that when he is attacked in his home, which I think he lives in the same neighborhood as uh, the Michael Keaton character from uh, Spider-Man <laughs> yes, Homecoming. Yes, definitely looked like a similar house. Um, so I guess that's where you know, that's you know, how you know when uh, men of a certain age have uh, ha- have gone over to the the dark side of their professions. They, they live in that style house. Um, but... Uh, I really enjoyed the fight because at no point did you think this guy was a pushover. Maybe age got the better of him and maybe he's not able to punch as hard as Frank Castle. But X number of years ago, he was Frank Castle or he had that that punching power. And I like that that came across in the fight. And I don't know a whole lot about fight choreography, but he, he clearly could hold his own until he couldn't. Yeah, I see in him a, a, a darker, more greedy uh, version of, of Frank really, uh, scary when you think about it. And I really appreciated the tension of the, the tie, you know, what we can see as opposed to what Frank sees before everything, you know, comes full circle in that fight. And, you know, Castle just cracks that neck. Well, it's funny you should mention that because you've, uh, you've brought me around to the wisdom of watching with the subtitles on and, when I saw the fight conclude with the subtitled words neck cracking, I was like, wait, no, there's no way they just killed off C. Thomas Howell in they like did. his third scene. I, I I must have gotten that wrong. Or maybe it's cracking, you know, like, all right, Pete, crack the knuckles, which of course I can't do on Mike at the moment, but it's it's that kind of cracking, right? And then to have Madani come in later and it's, you know, oh, he is legit dead. You you are in charge now very you know very clear telegraphing to the audience that that wolf is definitely a goner all right show you got me you surprised me in the death of uh, somebody who i thought was going to be a longer term villain and pete speaking of villainy maybe not quite full-on villainy but i got the heebie-jeebies and the creepies from micro watching his family i had to wonder if his wife could see through the one frame um there, there was a moment where she's watching it and you're like is, is this a signal is she somehow aware um and i think it can be read that way i think perhaps they wanted it read that way in the in the you know blocking of the scene um with all the cameras there and you know we we first see him watching this conversation between his children and the wife and the the son going on about the movie and bringing dad into it and and the whole shebang. Um, And it's certainly filled with pathos because he can't be involved. And then to speak there as if he is, you know, calls the daughter, the little bunny and, and the whole thing. And it's a mirror of Frank in that he's alive. His family is alive they've lost him or they think they've lost him. Um, and, and just a different way to tell that story, uh, particularly the, the way he is believed to have gone out, that he was killed doing the right thing. And that his wife has mixed feelings about his death. I really enjoyed her as a character, somebody who, I mean, I, in, in precious few scenes, this is one of these things where you say, all right, well, we're not going out to get, you know, uh, Emma Stone to play this role for a variety of reasons, including it is it is not of uh, 
her her size role. But all right, lady, now that we've got you, you need to sell the bittersweet notion of love and loss and a dead husband who you still part you know part of you still you know as she says she doesn't know if she'd clock him or or kiss him if he walked through the door so that kind of you know hey take my wife please that kind of normal spousal stuff where where you know you love the person and you're ready to kill them uh how she still is there but then also starting to cry because to her knowledge he's dead really really poignant stuff from again a character who is not given a ton of screen time and an actress who is certainly more than able in this role but somebody who's you know not this home run hitter of oh i cry at every at every show that she's in and when you have a character in in micro in lieberman here who is essentially a voyeur albeit he would have permission here to be looking in on on what he is with the family and you've got frank who shows up who's attempting to glean information and the tension even though we know frank is our protagonist the tension of micro watching him through the nanny cams in the home um again we we've been so um you know beyond blessed with the villains particularly in the marvel netflix shows uh fisk Kilgrave, and Cottonmouth, um and not so much on that other show with the kung fu but um I, I like this as a change i like that we go in with not a dominant all right you know they're not even talking about the bad guy's name you know he's bad when they can't even say his name we don't really know who the bad guy is at this point. And it's not as if we need a supervillain that goes more again with this material. Um, you know, Frank has left the body count already. Is the bad guy going to come from the system which saw fit to, uh, to, to have Frank Castle's family killed? If so, that will be, that'll be interesting in this ever evolving uh, discussion on government and whatnot. Uh, is the villainy going to come from uh, from none other than Billy Russo, um, either just because of the the potency of the character, and certainly the the actor is somebody who is uh, you know has a ton of charisma. Um, then you bring into it you know Anvil as a as a uh, a proxy for for Blackwater or these other companies that do kind of private military stuff. Um, are you saying a character who we almost immediately like and then has this great, you know, chemistry laden scene with Madani and uh, confesses to being Frank Castle's boy? Are you saying, Matt, they're going to stick it in our heart and turn it? that he was the drug guy all along and I don't know, uh, made the profits and sank it into Anvil. Thanks Frank for helping me make my own company. And now I kill your family. Oh, well, when you put it like that, <laughs> man, is, uh, is, uh, Ben Barnes playing another black hatted villain out to cause, uh, out to cause, I don't know, turmoil and upset with those around him. Cause maybe he was cast you know cast uh similar to his role from from westworld 
Well, I think we're very lucky to have him. And again, with what he brings in the positive charisma, at least to this point that we've watched and, and podcast compared to what he did on, on Westworld, nefarious goading, uh, really making you not appreciate him yet uh, recognize when he's on screen and, and what he does for our main characters. Well, let's talk some theories. Will Micro be able to be freed from, from this uh, self-imposed prison or presumably self-imposed prison? Will he be freed now that, uh, now that Wolf is out of the picture or are there more layers to his, uh, to his prison? The set, Matt, is so detailed it tells me not yet. It is a great set. It's a wonderful location and I love that when it first gets introduced – there's next to no sound and they, they don't overly hold it, but there's maybe five seconds, eight seconds where he's just watching and it's, it's, it's stifling by its lack of sensory information that we're getting on our couches as we watch. Um, and I think I, it, it's difficult to argue with what you're saying, Pete, unless asterisk, unless it is a real location that they've found somehow, um, they've that they've you know put props into i guess that would be the one exception but if that is a built set which is probably the case then uh yeah we have to be going back to it it's it's far too staged there's all these crazy angles there's you know you look up at the ceiling and what's placed in the ceiling they're not quite tiles they're like glass panes it's a tremendous set um, and, and really had to be a blast to shoot in and, and, and to play with the, uh, the, the lights and everything like that. So, yeah, I, I, I think he's going to be there for a little bit. I, I think with the pathos of the character to have to continue to follow his family over the cameras, there's too much emotionally, dramatically to mine there. Will we see, uh, now that Madani is on the rise, will we see Stein continue to stick by her side, uh, perhaps if only just to be the person that she can speak to so that she's not you know, doing an internal narration, or with this, with this uh, you know, bottom-rung detective type, will we see him zig against her zag and see some intrigue there? I don't think we can trust him. Something just does not seem quite right. The way he kind of pressed her when they first came in, not in an inappropriate way like Wolf did, but just kind of laying out for her the way it was and and the way it's going to be and that you can't defeat that. And now she's the ranking agent. Um, Yeah, something tells me he can't be trusted. Dirty? I, I wouldn't go that far. But bungling if not quite up to the challenge you mentioned wolf and his inappropriate workplace behavior uh i had noted in the first episode let's watch for how the show makes the people frank castle hurts tortures beats up kills the show needs to make them worse than him so that at the very least our sympathies are with him as he does these awful deeds as he punishes them uh, certainly no love lost to see Wolf get beaten. You know, Wolf, the kind of, you know, sexist, racist, somewhat inept, uh, inculcated boss, didn't mind seeing him get a whooping. And then, of course, later on, his role in Frank's death, where, where you know, our sympathy only grows. But um, 
let's keep watching for that. Who who gets so bad that they might require a punishing and we're okay with it? Yeah, and given the theater where you know these misdeeds seem to have taken place in Afghanistan, and you know I'm sure there's a lot of flashback stuff coming to to uh, flesh that out. You know, we we did hear uh, Schoonover's voice in this episode, although we've not seen Clancy Brown just yet. You have to imagine that's coming soon. Yeah, certainly the, the, the flashback must be a common. Well, Matt, I want to talk some journalism. So we reintroduce uh, Devran Wall's Karen Page in this episode. And longtime listeners of the Fantastic Geek uh, podcast will know I've been a little critical of the way they have treated her as a journalist, that her rise has been a little too quick a little too meteoric and again it has to happen for tv pace and and that is an understanding that makes the sins less egregious but here we get ellison back so to bring back uh the editor first introduced um in uh season one of daredevil uh to to bring um jeffrey cantor back in um, and how we as an audience have come to, you know, have this rapport with him. I mean, he's, he's not Perry White, uh, but he, he's not a bad uh, substitute in this world for it. And the idea that he spiked is the journalism term, this story here, uh, because Carson Wolf came in personally and said they were in the midst of an investigation And now he's going to give this stuff to Karen, who can run it to uh, Frank. It's a serious breach of journalistic ethics. I agree with everything you're saying, but I feel like when in doubt, the the story can always rely on something we've discussed at at various other times where where uh, Ellison has popped up in uh, in some of these Marvel Netflix shows. There's a reason he's the editor at the Bulletin, which we can assume is the sixth place newspaper. Uh, perhaps not so in the last year. It's been getting some good stories. What with, you They're know, constantly reading it, man. <laughs> that's that's all true. He ever reads. But I think that I think that um, I, I'm not willing to forgive him his journalistic sins. I'm willing to forgive the story of those sins ever so slightly. In that. You don't get the sense that this is a this has been historically a super successful newspaper. So if he's one of the lesser editors in New York City uh, and in the newspaper world there, I could see him making decisions that are less than uh, less than ideal. Well, it's an indictment on Karen too that she would leak that information to Frank. And again, friendship um, being one thing, I get it and. Um, you know, later on for the positive, when she meets with him, uh, down by the river, she wants to know is, is giving you this information going to result in somebody being killed. So there is a justification for it and, and that I can, I can get behind, but yeah, it, it would be perceived as, you know, you protect the source at, at one point she's doing this to Ellison and then. Ellison gives her this stuff and she gives it to Frank. So, you know, good for the goose, good for the gander. Not quite. 
Perhaps, Pete, she should have gone to journalism school. Perhaps she is making these mistakes because she she knows not better. Yeah. Um, last thing I want to talk about from a theory perspective. So uh, Frank finally watches the micro uh, disc that he was given back all the way back in Daredevil season two. Um, and we have a bunch of masked soldiers, one of whom uh, seems to be an intelligence officer in that he is not wearing fatigues. Um, so clearly that's not Frank. Frank is not the murderer who kills uh, Abouar here. But uh, are we to believe Frank is one of these guys in the in the background, that he's down with this, that he's seeing this from another perspective, or was he not at all involved in this deed? I think based on the evidence from this episode, we are absolutely meant to believe that he was there. Now, can they take that away with you know, a, a sleight of hand reveal in the next episode and, and for Frank to say, I heard about these things and I didn't know whether I should speak up or not, you know, or something like that. Okay, fine. But in the interim, his shock in seeing it, I think is not just the shock of seeing another human being tortured, but I think it's this realization of the ghosts of the past coming back. And um, there's other references kind of laced throughout the episode where I really get the sense that he... Um, you know, he was party to these these off the books kind of uh, kind of black ops moments in Afghanistan, and um, I believe it's Kurt who 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 says uh, at, at one point you can't question the legality or the ethics of of orders. I think that that notion is part of what led uh, Frank Castle to that scene of torture, which set off perhaps if we believe wolf set off a series of events that has resulted in this most caustic and most painful echo back to frank with the loss of his family well now that there's discussion of the disc between uh madani and uh stein there that's another thing that makes me worry we can't quite trust him because he's aware of this we can trust her because of, of what we've seen and, and what we've seen as uh, viewers uh, her go through in terms of her experience, at least until something changes in her character. I think it would be very difficult to make a Middle Eastern woman a, a villain uh, in, the, in the current age on a show like this. But uh, he would seem to be the weak link. So being aware of this tape now uh certainly could be a negative maybe he is the guy that goes dark on this man it is interesting to think that uh madani must be the anti anti-hero in this i mean that is simply what's fated you're right it it, it it simply wouldn't do, um, particularly for Marvel television, which prides itself on being progressive. It wouldn't do to to say, "Surprise, Pete Madani is a sleeper agent for a, a foreign terrorist group." Yeah, um, she's being held up as a paragon of uh, of of professionalism and as someone who is still sticking with what is right with a capital R, what is correct in terms of pursuing this this Afghanistan case, despite the fact that her bosses have told her to stop, and despite the fact that her bosses have sent her to New York for a wink-wink promotion, and you can't pursue that anymore. Um, 
she's being set up as somebody who does the right thing, who, who damns the torpedoes because it is the right thing to do. Um, which is kind of what Frank does. He just lives by a whole other set of rules. So um, she certainly is a welcome, a welcome presence in the show. Absolutely. And I think the screen sizzles when she's on there, I, I, of all the scenes in the episode, I appreciated the one with her, with Billy Russo the most. I, I want to see more of that type of interaction. She's always been so defensive with everybody else she's been with, even her mom. Uh, there to let it down just a little bit uh, really gave her far more depth as a character. Well, Pete, in this episode, we saw Madani getting the prize of, uh, of upgraded rank in her, uh, in her office. R.I.P. Wolf. Or not that R.I.P. But regardless, goodbye, Wolf. Uh, Pete, there's another prize to be had, and that's for people who leave a review for us on iTunes. So we would certainly love to get a review for this Punisher podcast, either on the Punisher podcast feed on iTunes or the Pop Culture podcast feed. We love us, those reviews. It helps connect new listeners, helps connect old listeners to our content. Yes, and you would be the first to write a review to the Punisher podcast by Fantastic Geek, and that would gain you an entry into tomorrow night, Tuesday, November 21st, uh, raffle for a New York Comic Con exclusive uh, Grandmaster Funko Pop that we will be drawing. So uh, we have, or will soon on iTunes, the moment it accepts the Runaways uh, submission that Matt turned in yesterday, uh, we will have 13 feeds now, Fantastic Geek does, on iTunes. All two guys of us. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if you have the time and you are so inclined and you would like to enter that raffle, uh, you get an entry for every review you leave between now and when we draw that. So conceivably, you could have 13 entries. So if you really want to get this Jeff Goldblum Grandmaster pop as he appeared in Thor Ragnarok. This is your opportunity between the Punisher, between the pop culture podcast, between all of our feeds. Give us a little something, something, and we'll come through for you. And indeed, Pete, in addition to that, we love hearing from our listeners. Pete, how can people be in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 9,634 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I am personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, you can be in touch with the podcast anytime you like. Visit fantasticgeek.com. Email fantasticgeek at gmail.com. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH all one word. Another place to interact with your boys. If you're listening to us on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we'll be back tomorrow to talk Runaways. If you're listening to us on the Punisher feed, we will be back soon to talk more Punisher. This uh, certainly a rewarding experience all around. So with that, Pete, I will say time to get my bacon and eggs and toast and give you the final word. Happy hunting.